five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Mark Boucher. In this week's podcast, we're featuring a recent Future in Space Operations presentation by Paul Yaffe of the Naval Research Laboratory, who will speak on power beaming and space applications. This complements an earlier podcast this season by Jeff Mankins on the same topic. We think it's very timely and useful. Listen in. Great. Thank you for the introduction. And also, thank you for the opportunity. It's great to hear uh, many familiar names online. A lot of uh, a lot of folks that uh, I've worked with for many years. For those of you that are unaware, I have worked at the Naval Research Laboratory in, in various capacities since 1994, and for the last about uh, call it dozen plus years, a major focus of my work has been on power beaming and solar power satellites. And in this presentation, I will talk both about power beaming and uh, to a slightly lesser extent about solar power satellites, but also look at a number of the other potential applications for power beaming in space. And this is something that is coming back to the fore as the race to exploit fifth lunar space heats up. There are um, uh, many concepts that have been proposed over the years, and we're starting to finally see like a little bit of hardware in a range of these areas. And I definitely welcome the discussion. I trust we'll ensue after uh, after I brief here. And I guess with that, I will get started. So if you have the PDF chart package, it should be 32 charts. The title chart says power beaming and space applications and actually has a, a concept that uh, was submitted and made it through at least one of the rounds of uh, NIAC uh, not too long ago. And we will move on to chart two, which is a short overview of some of the different things that I've done through NRL recently or that I've been involved with with respect to power beaming. Starting on the left is a demonstration we did in 2019 at the Naval Surface Warfare Center at Carterock in Bethesda, Maryland. This was done with NRL and with uh, NIWIC PAC, which is uh, Naval Information Warfare Center Pacific. The company Powerlight Technologies, formerly Laser Motive, that some of you may know from their winning the uh, power beaming Centennial Challenge uh, over 10 years ago now. And, uh, and a number of other folks as well. So it was a definitely big, big team effort. And what we did is we showed that it is safe or it can be done safely to use laser power beaming over a appreciable distance. In this case, it was 325 meters. And we did send in excess of 400 watts. So that was uh, 407 watts. You can see in the picture the transmitter and then inset is the receiver and the power received there and for scale you can see a number of folks below the receiver knows that uh, i guess you can't maybe quite tell from this picture but none of them are wearing laser safety eyewear because the system had been designed with safety as one of the foremost concerns and all of the reflections were controlled all of the uh, beam interlocks in case something were to impinge on the area approaching the beam were used and we tested this both um, just with a, sticking a, a wax bird on the end of a pole towards the beam, but we actually had some real birds fly through it as well because inside the model basin, which is where this demonstration was done, there are some birds that have taken up residence there. We had done a similar demo on the West Coast in Seattle, and similarly there, there were occasions during the many hours of testing where birds did happen to fly through the beam, and in every case, it was successfully shut off, and once the path was clear, the beam was reestablished. So I think this shows pretty definitively that it's certainly possible to conduct laser power beaming in a safe manner. I will mention that these pictures show the laser is appearing purple, but it was indeed in the infrared, about uh, just under one micron wavelength. So if you were standing there, you would not actually see it uh, when it was in operation. We did use the power on the receive end and it was running for many hours over the course of several days. We had several different demonstrations and brought a, 
range of VIPs and uh, in excess of 100 spectators to uh, to see this. And we powered a laptop and a coffee maker and some lights and a variety of things and sort of a representative uh, security shelter or shack uh, to actually use the power. There was also a, a storage capability integrated with that. We called it a sort of a, like a Prius can use the energy while the uh, the engine is running or stored in a battery and then use energy from there. We use a similar approach so that when the beam did shut off, it didn't mean that the computer had to shut down or the coffee was not going to be made. There was a, a buffer on the receive end, which I think is important for almost every power beaming scenario. Since 2019, we have gone on to do actually a second demonstration earlier this year, which was shorter distance and lower power, but had a much smaller receiver. So the receiver there is about the size of a trash can lid. And for the demo we did earlier this year, the receiver was about the size of a pie plate. And while the total power was less, the power density was significantly higher. If you're interested in seeing a video on that, that is also on NRL's YouTube channel. I have the link to the YouTube video shown there. So clearly uh, quite a bit of progress in laser power beaming, particularly with the safety. And I think as we start looking at the prospect of using power beaming laser and otherwise in places like the moon and in space, these are really important precursors for establishing those kind of systems. So if you direct your attention to the center of this chart is a STEM demonstration that was conducted on the International Space Station last year. Pictured there is astronaut Jessica Meir, and she is holding in her hand something that we call a, a lectenna, a light emitting rectenna. So it's an LED and a Schottky diode, that's it and put in a test tube to so you don't have to, to touch the, the leads. And you can make these at home if you want out of very inexpensive parts and show how the energy and the Wi-Fi from your phone or your Wi-Fi router or your microwave oven or a variety of different Wi-Fi and 2.45 gigahertz sources can be detected and used to light up an LED. So what astronaut Jessica Muir is doing here is she's just holding it up to the Wi-Fi base station on the International Space Station. And if you look there, you can see a little red spot where the LED is lighting up. This was part of a, a STEM campaign where we put this video out, also put out some videos showing how to make these things. At this point, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of kids around the world who have made their own and have sent us pictures and videos of it to show that they, they did it. And it's exciting because usually you can't see radio waves and microwaves from Wi-Fi devices. So being able to see that is, is quite exciting. Uh, definitely. And there's YouTube link for that as well. So uh, we have actually, I should have linked it here probably, but there is on the NRL website, a specific landing page for Lectana that gives you the parts list and the instructions and tips and things. So for anyone who wants to make that, very quick project, and I encourage you to make that and play around with it yourself. And then finally, on the right side is a picture of our experiment that is currently in orbit on the X-37B orbital test vehicle. That's the, uh, the space plane, the Air Force mini shuttle that you might be familiar with. Typically launches and stays in orbit for about two years before landing back on a runway. And the payload, the experiment there, PRAM-FX, standing for photovoltaic RF antenna module flight experiment, is based on a hardware prototype that we started building at NRL in 2009. I must give credit to, uh, to John Mankins, who's on the line. He and I, uh, some maybe a year or two before that, uh, would meet periodically at a uh, restaurant near the Mark Center, the... Um, uh, gosh, just slipping my, my mind right now. Um, but uh, but we we talked about different experiments that could be done in space to help get a better sense of the feasibility for some of the solar power satellite concepts that were out. So at the time, there was the integrated symmetrical concentrator concept from the National Security Space Office's report, and of course, SPS Alpha, which now has gone through a couple improvements and iterations, which also uses the sandwich module approach as well as, as others. And we basically built a sandwich module, which uh, I don't know how many of you were on my previous FISO brief that dealt with a sandwich module, but it has a solar panel on top. 
DC to RF conversion electronics in the middle and then an antenna element on the back. So while we're not radiating from the X37B because we looked at that and the host was not going to be happy if we were generating uh, an RF source, we are putting the RF energy that is generated into an RF load, which allows us to measure it very precisely. And from the on-orbit data that's been generated so far, and it's still operating today, we still get data periodically, and we're working on a paper that will summarize the results, hopefully be out in 2022. There are initial results that were published earlier this year in a IEEE Journal of Microwaves paper I can point you to if you're interested. Uh, but we are finding that uh, we have, to our knowledge, set a record for specific power. We've been able to explore a lot of the subtleties of the thermal control for sandwich module configurations. And we've, we've learned a lot about different aspects of operating with this kind of configuration in the orbital environment. You, you likely know that most satellites have solar arrays that are either body mounted or on axes, and they either have a significant volume behind them or they don't have any uh, other source of inefficiency to generate a thermal load in the, the case of, uh, of deployable solar arrays. So doing the uh, operation in this configuration has definitely some subtleties associated with it that we'll be publishing and that you can see also in that uh, initial uh, journal paper. So that is up there and that is the, to, to my knowledge, the first instance of an orbital flight experiment for hardware specifically targeting the solar power satellite application. So we're pretty, pretty proud of that. There's a video there that goes into a little bit more depth on it. All right, so with that, let's go to chart three. And before I get too far, I will define what I mean when I say power beaming. For the sake of this discussion, power beaming is the delivery of meaningful amounts of energy across long spans of free space without moving mass. So of course, there's a number of subjective terms in there, but I'll talk a little bit more about those shortly. Looking at this in kind of a simple three block depiction, you can imagine that a lot of places we use energy, it's not necessarily easy, cheap, or convenient to get that energy compared to other places. A lot of times we can connect these two places with a wire or by delivering fuel or batteries or some other means. Those methods are not always feasible or desirable for a variety of reasons. So power beaming can be looked at as a potential means to get energy from one place to another where those other ones might fall short or be otherwise undesirable. So let's move on to chart four. And we're going to break that three block diagram into a number of additional blocks and talk about some of the metrics that are important in examining power beaming systems and their implementation. So the input source now has a power conversion block and a transmit aperture on the left side. There is, of course, still the free space or the transmission media between the transmit aperture and receive aperture. And here I'm using aperture to in a pretty general sense, like these structures could look uh, like a variety of different things and don't necessarily have to be strictly like conventional optical or RF apertures, but for the sake of this depiction, we're going to call them apertures. And then on the receive side, there's additional power conversion, and then you apply the power energy to whatever it is your application might be. The little blue boxes that you see are 15 different metrics that are likely to be of interest to users or implementers of power beaming systems. They include some of the obvious things like size, weight, and power. So the mass and the volume that something takes up. If you want to beam power to a drone, you want the receiver to be relatively lightweight, not need a exorbitant amount of volume to be installed on the drone. You want to know exactly what the length of the power beaming link that you can implement is. And then, of course, uh, if you look on either side, the left and right of this, there's the power in and the power out. Power beaming implementers have always been a little bit shy about saying what their end-to-end -end efficiency is. And this is, in some ways, problematic because it makes it difficult for people who might want to actually implement these links to know what they should expect. So definitely the end-to-end -end efficiency is important. The distance you can cover is important. And then you'll see there's three icons, a bird, an eye, and a hand. And this concerns the power density. So 
there are various national and inter international bodies that have established safe power density use for microwave energy at different frequencies, optical energy at different wavelengths. And we want to make sure that the accessibility of that power is limited by some means to make sure that we are not uh, frying birds, as it were, or blinding people or creating other kinds of problems. So I won't go into tremendous depth on any on the other metrics, but I invite you to kind of examine them at your leisure. I think in the backup I have a, a bigger explanation of what each one is. And I also have a draft book chapter that I can provide to folks who really want to dive into this and also the methods by which you might use to uh, actually measure these in a real system. So moving on to chart five, which for some reason does not have a page number, you can see that there are two major sections of the electromagnetic spectrum where power beaming has received pretty uh, intensive scrutiny. The top one there is laser, and you can see I've, I've highlighted this chart of atmospheric opacity where 0% is ideal and 100% is generally uh, not what you want because all the energy is going to get uh, dissipated in the atmosphere. And you see there's a range of wavelengths. Some of them are safer for your eyes by two orders of magnitude than others. And there's a range of different ways that you can generate the laser light and receive it on the other end to convert it back. Lower on the chart, on the lower right, you'll see a blue region, which is the millimeter wave and microwave region. Most of the microwave and RF power beaming that's been done to date is in the microwave region, typically below uh, about 12 gigahertz. That's starting to change a little bit, although there are notable exceptions to that. And then there's also been some work at W-band in the millimeter wave region around 94 gigahertz. You can see a range of different transmit and receive technologies for that. No, so next I'm going to show you some examples of power beaming demonstrations that have been done. If you go to chart six, here is a grouping, certainly not exhaustive, of six different laser power beaming demonstrations. The one in the upper left there was done in Europe almost 20 years ago now, where laser power was sent to a mock rover on a mock planetary surface. There has been quite a bit of work in Japan. On the upper right, you can see a laser-powered quadcopter that is taking video footage of a mock disaster zone. There's actually down in that cluster of, of buildings, there's a little orange person that is meant to, uh, to signify a, a person distress that you could find using a laser-power-beamed drone. We obviously didn't have this technology during the Fukushima disaster, although it might have been good to have. And then along the bottom, you'll see a number of different ones. The one on the left is a shot from a program from 2012 that was done in a British TV show called Bang Goes the Theory. This was at the University of Maryland across a quarter kilometer distance. About 10 watts was beamed. And the notable thing about this demonstration is, is it was done at 1.4 microns, which is a much safer for the eyes area of the spectrum. And the host of the TV show actually stuck his face into the power beam to show that it was safe. So that was pretty dramatic. If you want to watch that, that video is also available on the BBC website. In the center is a fixed-wing aircraft, uh, Lockheed Martin Stalker, that was powered by an infrared laser. So that red spot that you see in the middle of the receiver is not the laser, that's just a beacon. Uh, but this was flown for quite some time. This is part of a laser motive demonstration. And then in the lower right is the same demo I described on the second chart, but this is when we did it in Seattle. And you can see the Seattle Space Needle in the background there. Again, if you were there, you wouldn't actually see it because it's in the infrared and it's just because we have an infrared sensitive camera that the beam actually appears. So if you go next to chart seven, you'll see some of the more prominent milestones for microwave power beaming demonstrations. In the upper left is what, to my knowledge, remains the highest end-to-end -end efficiency power beaming demonstration of any modality that was done in 1975 in Waltham, Massachusetts by Dick Dickinson and William C. Brown. Relatively short distance, less than two meters, but they were pretty careful about analyzing sources of loss, and they did a pretty comprehensive NASA report that enumerates how they calculated all this, and they had separate uh, independent QA 
uh, review of that. So we have a lot of confidence in that 54% number. Also in 1975, which is something of a golden year for microwave power beaming, there was a famous demonstration many of you likely already familiar with at the Goldstone Deep Space Network node in California, where this large, I think it's 26 meter uh, dish was pointed at the rectenna array sitting on top of the ridge line. There's a small white panel that has a little notch in top affixed to the tower. And then just below the ridge line is an array of lights that corresponds to the power that is falling on each of those rectenna quadrants or, or uh, segments. So they actually swept the beam across the receiver, and you can see the lights correspondingly get dimmer and brighter depending on the power density. So this still to this day, although it is likely to be broken soon if it hasn't been already, is the longest distance and the highest power power beaming demonstration publicly disclosed to date. So about a mile and 34 kilowatts, which is a huge amount of power. So I think that 34 kilowatts is probably going to stand for a bit longer. But the, uh, the distance one uh, very well may not. And I wish I could tell you today about something that we did over the summer, but that is probably going to get announced within the next month or so. And uh, you'll, you'll see it at that point. Uh, there's been, like with laser in Japan, a lot of microwave activity, including the Mylax. This is a microwave-powered fixed-wing aircraft that you see flying above this vehicle in the picture on the upper right. And also at Kyoto University in 2009, a cell phone was charged from this lighter-than-air vehicle uh, on the ground to show, show a practical use for power beaming. And then I've just picked one of a number of demos from the last several years that have happened in Japan uh, on the lower right. This is uh, Mitsubishi Electric, where they at 5.8 gigahertz beamed uh, several hundred watts over 55 meters. And in something of a tradition that I'd like to think we've continued with what we did with the laser power beaming, they used the received power to brew tea. We used our received power uh, in 2019 to brew coffee. So. If any of you are going to implement any power beaming demos uh, coming up, I urge you to uh, use the power to brew some kind of beverage. All right, next chart is chart eight. So what's actually been done from a standpoint of received power and transmission distance? So a lot of the spots on here, the, uh, the points on here, are from the demos that I pictured on the previous chart. Please note, that both the X and Y axes are logarithmic, so it helps to get everything fitting so that you can see it with a reasonable amount of separation. Unsurprisingly, the highest power longest distance is that NASA Goldstone demo that I mentioned, which is the blue dot in the upper right from 1935. And then in the brown circle is the only one that has been over 50% efficient. That's the 54% uh, one also from 1975. I also have called out here, circle in green, the only demos that had safe accessible power density. So that includes the one we did in 2019 and earlier this year in 2021, although that one's not shown on here. The one at the University of Maryland with the iSafe laser and then Y-Charge, which is an Israeli company that is uh, producing laser power beaming devices for consumer electronics. So you like mount this uh, on your ceiling or you have a little transmitter sitting in the corner of your room and it finds your phone or your laptop or your smartwatch or whatever and it charges it by, by laser. So uh, I have had the um, benefit of having a prototype or a, uh, a demonstration unit of one of these and I did test it in my dining room and it worked very well. Was able to get it connect to connect over 30 feet and charge up a range of things. So technology is real and it is a uh, it is approved by the uh, FDA and the consumer regulatory agencies. I will stop here and, and note that even though I'm speaking highly of their technology as a government employee, I'm not endorsing and cannot endorse any uh, company or, or service. So, so this is what's been done terrestrially. You might remember that the title of this talk has to do with power being in space. So if we took the same plot and tried to make it for what was done in space, it would look something like the next chart, which is chart nine, and it would have no points on it at all. Now, 
some of you that are familiar with power beaming history may say, well, Paul, what about Minix and ISY Mets in the 1980s? And I would say those are great, but they were suborbital, so they don't fit into the, uh, the orbital regime. And then you could say, well, you just showed us Lectana, which clearly was doing power beaming in space on the space station. But I would say, well, that's less than a meter, so it's kind of trivial. And there's actually another demo that was done in recent years called RFT set that also demonstrated uh, short-range power beaming in space, but it was still less than a meter. And then you might also rightly say, well, every day for decades, we've had communication satellites and other types of spacecraft that have sent power to the Earth for telemetry and for sending data. And I would say, yeah, that's true. But in all of those cases, the received power has been less than a watt and the end-to-end -end efficiency either, and or the end-to-end -end efficiency has been less than 1%. So I would contend that there are no power beaming demonstrations that have been done in space that have been greater than a meter in orbit and greater than a watt and greater than 1% end, of, end efficiency. So, so we have a little ways to go. Now, if I take the, the previous chart and I sort of extend the axes, and this is depicted on chart 10, you'll see all the same points from chart eight, but now they are fitting in the lower left quadrant and we've gone quite a few orders of magnitude longer in distance and power. There are a number of proposed systems, including SPS Alpha, Cassiopeia, a whole range of solar power satellite systems, SPS 2000, the Bell Island WPT link for utility uh, transmission. Uh, these have been proposed, but there's quite a big gap between what's actually been demonstrated and what's been proposed. So it might make sense to start filling us in a little bit, especially since for space we have nothing that we can put on the spot again. So I'm going to talk a little bit later in the brief about one way we can just get a single point, some kind of hello world sort of thing on there so we have somewhere to, to start from and we have some credibility. But first, let me talk about categorizing the length of these links. So if you go to chart 11, I've somewhat arbitrarily broken the link distance into four sort of common language categories, short, medium, and long, where short is less than or equal to 10 meters, medium is longer than short, but less than or equal to 100 kilometers, long would be less than or equal to 100,000 kilometers, and then very long would be anything longer than that. So in order, the applications for these kinds of power beaming links might be within a satellite or between satellites for lunar power beaming networks for solar power satellites or for beamed energy propulsion, which is something we've also heard a lot about over the years, and there have been some interesting ground demos, but nothing, of course, uh, in space yet, really. So moving on to chart 12, I've overlaid these categorizations onto the previous log log chart, and you can see that all of these things are going to be long or in a shorter category. And if you go on to chart 13, I start to dig into a little bit more of the specifics about what these links might be used for and how. Some of you might recall a DARPA effort from some years ago called DARPA System S6, which was for fractionated spacecraft. These were going to be, instead of a monolithic spacecraft, you could launch like a swarm of spacecraft, and each one would have the responsibility for some function, and you could upgrade the spacecraft by replacing one of the nodes with a more capable one. So you might have one that was responsible for the power generation that would beam power to the other nodes or something along those lines. It never really panned out, but uh, there was some interesting work done. And it's not to say that power beaming between spacecraft is not something that could work. And certainly within spacecraft, there's often reasons that you might not want to connect something with wire or another means because maybe the spacecraft has a rotating joint that you want to get across or, or some other reason for isolation, what have you. There's more on DARPA F6 at the URL that I've linked there before below. Moving on to chart 14, one of the things that's gotten a ton of attention over the last 18 months, two years or so, has been power beaming for the moon. NASA has offered the luster, I forget what it stands for, lunar surface, something or other, um, a luster proposal opportunity. They did the Big Idea Challenge, which had responses from a number of universities. And then they also have Watts on the Moon, which deals with power architectures on the Moon. And there have been quite a lot of really interesting demos, including hardware, 
uh, out of UVA, uh, Colorado School of Mines, and elsewhere that are exploring this. And I think this is a pretty promising application case, right, because it's hard to imagine that it's going to make sense for us to be stringing, like, high-voltage power lines all over the moon. And if power beaming can be done efficiently enough and effectively enough, and we could do it either from lunar orbit or between very distant parts on the moon that could be quickly and easily reconfigured, that could be really attractive. So uh, not I wouldn't call it a sure bet just yet, but it is certainly promising enough that it should get a decent amount of examination. And the moon is just one place. It might see this on Mars or uh, in other areas as well. If you go on to chart 15, you'll see a depiction of a solar power satellite functional diagram. This is something that many of you have probably heard about and spent some time thinking about over the years. Basically, for solar power satellites, if you're not familiar with them, is we collect the continuous sunlight in space and beam it for use on Earth. This has a number of advantages, including that the sunlight in space is brighter than anywhere on Earth. You don't have to worry about clouds or nighttime, contingent on the orbit you select. And you now have a power distribution network that is going to be probably more flexible than any terrestrial one that you could have because you could redirect power from one continent to another in a matter of seconds without incurring the huge transmission losses that you might today. Moving on to chart 16 is the last use case I'm going to talk a little bit about, which is beamed energy propulsion. There's been a number of studies and even some interesting work done in hardware for how we could send spacecraft to nearby star systems in maybe decades rather than hundreds of years by accelerating them to some sizable fraction of the speed of light using either lunar-based or land-based or space-based lasers. So needless to say, those power beam lengths would be quite long. All right, so let's go to chart 17. What next? Well, so as I just pointed out, there hasn't been a power beaming demonstration of greater than a meter and greater than 1% end-to-end efficiency. We should try that. What might it look like? You go to chart 18. I'll talk a little bit first about SWELL, the Space Wireless Energy Laser Link. This is a proposed experiment, which actually now is a bit past the uh, proposal stage and is getting, uh, getting hopefully close to being delivered to uh, the host spacecraft. But like anything, these things have challenges. So we are seeking to establish a power beaming link, in this case optical, that is going to be greater than a meter and that will show greater than 1% end-to-end efficiency. Pretty low bars, I would say, but again, something that hasn't been done yet. And it would operate for at least six months in space to see what kind of degradation we might expect and what sort of performance hits there might be based on temperature, radiation, and vacuum and the like. With this experiment, we will endeavor to measure all 15 of those blue boxes that I showed on the block diagram earlier in the presentation to sort of set a uh, a precedent or a, a point that we can work from to advance these different power beaming links. So if you look at chart 19, this is a little bit outdated, but this is the CAD from this experiment. So it's basically a long skinny box with two lasers at one end and two laser receivers at the other end and with instrumentation to measure both the power going into the lasers and out of the laser receivers. And that is just about it. It's, it was intended to be very simple, very straightforward, just to get some kind of data point. If you look at chart 20, you can see the block diagram. Again, this is a little bit outdated. We've had a couple changes. We actually combined the receiver board and the control board, but functionally it's very similar. So, but yeah, there's laser, collimator, laser beam, laser receiver, and temperature sensors and variety of supporting electronics interfacing to the host. So this would be on the International Space Station as part of a group of other hosted payloads. And then if you go to the next chart, I'll just offer a couple quick closing thoughts and then eagerly await any questions you have. And that is that I think power beaming offers quite a range of benefits for space applications. Like it's not easy or attractive in most cases to run wires through space or on the lunar surface or a range of places that we anticipate doing space operations in the next decade or so. Power beaming links could address a wide range of distances from short ones to very long ones. And as I said, there are 
to my knowledge, hasn't been a meaningful demo in space yet. So we are looking to try to make that a reality that won't fly probably until 2023. And these things, of course, always have uh, some schedule uncertainty with them. But we hope to get that up there and sort of plant that first flag and then move forward from there. So that's really the first step is realizing the benefits by demonstrating the small scale link. So I will leave it there and I invite your questions. Thank you for listening. Let's see, Harley must have disappeared. I'm not sure where he went off to, uh, but this is Dan Lester. Thanks very much, uh, Paul. This was uh, this is really nice stuff, uh, and we have loads of time for questions. Uh, I, I will ask a, a very simple one, uh, more of a, a policy-oriented one. You know, we've been talking about space power beaming for decades now. What has taken so long in actually trying out a, 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 a very, what would, I would think, be a very simple mission in space to, to test it. What, what's, what's the holdup? Well, so I've only been active in this area for about a dozen years, so I can't speak with uh, great authority to what uh, preceded that. I'll mention that doing anything in space even though this looks to be changing now, has for a long time been super expensive, right? So um, that uh, tram flight experiment that I mentioned, the, the third project all the way on the right at, that I talked about at the beginning, uh, to build the support and secure the funding for that relatively simple, straightforward experiment took quite a lot of time and energy and effort. And that one doesn't even do power beaming, right? That is just yeah. doing sunlight microwave conversion. So it is challenging to find sponsorship. So I'll, I'll mention um, most organizations that do stuff in space don't just have like a fixed congressional budget where they can just kind of go out and do whatever they want, right? Like for, for that and for all of the missions we do at NRL, we have to propose and find sponsors and figure out who is going to like what what's achievable um, building support and, and securing funding for things is not easy like for any of you that have read the private journals of William C. Brown who you'll recall he was involved in the Goldstone demo and also the uh, the Waltham Massachusetts demo a lot of the stuff in there is he he is just like <laughs> like I feel like it's torn from uh, my calendar, in a, in a sense, is just like trying to find proposal opportunities and write those proposals and get funding to do stuff. And I know John will probably back me up on this. With I know he has been fortunate enough to uh, to get a, a NIAC uh, award, but that takes a lot of work and there's a lot of competition and it's not easy. So even getting to like that first step requires people to suspend some disbelief, to have some faith that you can actually deliver something that's going to have utility. And it takes a lot of a lot of effort. It's not it's not easy. So uh, none of this stuff just happens automatically, right? There's no contingency. You could look at like the Apollo moon landing and say like, well, you know, we we went to the moon within 10 years, which we did, but it took like real leadership, right? I mean, yeah, President yeah. Kennedy like publicly announcing this thing and Congress supporting it and, and um, appropriating the funds. Uh, so it could certainly, I think, have happened a lot faster if a similar thing had happened. If you had had, like, President Carter right. and Reagan back in, like, the 70s and 80s and say, hey, we're going to see what we can do with solar power satellites and power beaming in space and, like, made a big national program out of it. There's no reason the technology couldn't have started development sooner. So history is, of course, built on contingencies that are susceptible and influenced by a wide range of factors. So. That is probably my best shot at answering that question. Over yeah, I, I guess I, I guess that's fair. I think it also has to be said that there are some pretty serious difficulties in doing this. I mean, if you if you you have the power system, it's fine, but you need a you need a good pointing system also, and and that's a uh, that's that that might be a stretch. Um, to to do is 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 that what I mean? Where where what do you think about that? Uh, so let me make sure that I am making an important distinction here. So for whatever reason, 
power beaming and solar power satellites have gotten conflated at times in the past. And hopefully you saw from my presentation that like, well, solar power satellites are a major application of power beaming. They're not the only right. one. Uh, but a lot of times when I start talking about power beaming, people assume that I'm talking about solar power satellites, which is oh, not always the case. That's a good so point. I want to be, I, I want to be clear that power beaming is distinct from solar power satellites. Almost every solar power satellite architecture depends on power beaming, although not all of them do. Um, but we can talk about power beaming without it necessarily involving solar power satellites. Yeah, that's a, so, that's a very that, that that's a very good point. Yeah, thank you. Paul, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> a little bit here. I just had a couple of questions for you. Um, as you know, we we did win the NASA Luster program uh, for power beaming on the moon to rover and a PSR so that's going along in terms of the demonstration on the ground, not a flight program. And then we, we have three NIAC phase one and three NIAC phase twos. But, you know, I think a lot of the issue here is in addition to sort of just demonstrating that it works, which you see every day from solar on your house, a lot of it is, is the use case, right? Who wants uh, beam power and needs beam power and can justify uh, requiring it. And I think that has always been a major impediment. Um, you know, if there is a need, usually there is a person to step up and say, I will help you with that need. But that's been a lot of the problem here. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, fully agree. Phil, I'm, I'm glad to hear. I didn't realize you were on it, and I am remiss in giving credit to UCSB for the outstanding work that, that you and your team have done to advance this technology. Uh, there's, I know there's a bunch of stuff coming up that hopefully we'll be able to talk about soon, but, um, but yeah, no, there's, and, and definitely, Phil, I, I don't know, the, uh, the beam energy propulsion chart, I think I got that from, oh gosh, I forget the name of it, but I know you've been, involved with the beam energy propulsion community for quite some time. So certainly yeah. I will defer to uh, any questions to you on that since you have much more experience and credibility with that. But yeah, but the point you make is, is critical, right? Like engineering is generally driven by requirements and the needs of people with resources, right? Like in the startup community, there's a, a saying that some of you may have heard, which is, you know, invent the aspirin, not the vitamin, right? Like, if people have a headache, they want to get rid of it. If you offer them a vitamin, they're like, ah, maybe I need it, maybe I don't, right? So power beaming has never been, uh, at least in a way that people can connect with the aspirin to uh, to deal with their headache, right? Uh, maybe that will start changing. Some of the problem is is they just don't know about it and they don't understand the capabilities. This is one reason that we've focused on the metrics and trying to really clearly ascertain what is doable and what has been achieved and what hasn't been. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think a lot of people have characterized power beaming and solar power satellites as like engineering solutions kind of looking for a problem, right? Like solar power satellites, of course, if they're going to produce energy for the grid or for some other application that might be willing to pay larger price or higher prices than, uh, than grid power, still needs to compete with the alternatives, right? So uh, similarly with power beaming, like if you can just use an extension cord and that works, like why are you going to complicate your life by putting a, a power beaming like that? If you can just plug your phone in, maybe that's going to be easier than getting uh, something that can charge from the ceiling. So, so definitely user needs are going to drive a lot of the activity and a lot of the investment. So I think that's an excellent point. Definitely glad you raised that, Phil. Other questions for uh, for Paul? Well, okay. Uh, uh, this is Mac Anderson. How are you doing, Paul? I haven't talked to you in a long time. Uh, yeah, Mac, great to hear from you. Yeah. Um, of course, a lot of applications of power beaming. Uh, back when we looked at it, uh, trying to do an experiment on the space station, is uh, certainly, uh, you know, power beaming uh, for national emergencies where disasters have happened and stuff and people have lost power. And certainly uh, power beaming would have a tremendous application there. 
And then we also talked about the military applications, about uh, how much we export uh, fuel around the world for bases and stuff like that, and power beaming would be a, a tremendous asset for that. And of course, uh, in space, uh, a certainly potential future, as you mentioned, is uh, power beaming on the moon. Is uh, so, I mean, uh, and of course, uh, space-based solar power satellites uh, to augment, uh, you know, energy supplies on Earth is uh, with uh, certainly uh, 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 the uh, fossil fuel being downgraded. Uh, so, to me, there's all kinds of applications that uh, that would fit in. Indeed. Yeah, and part of it is people just don't know what what they can ask for, right? Um, I think that's been part of the challenge, right? It's like, like without awareness, people don't know what the possibilities are, right? Like, I think there's another, what, Henry Ford quote or something that says, you know, if you ask people what they wanted, they would say they want, like, a faster horse, right? So um, we're, we're trying to give them give them the car instead of the uh, the faster horse because it can take them farther and have other other advantages. So it definitely depends on the application case. All the ones you mentioned, I think, are certainly possibilities. They do have to be examined critically, right? So, like, one thing that I feel like I've seen, particularly in the solar power satellite arena, is you have people who are kind of on either uh, extreme end of the spectrum kind of talking past each other, right? Like, there there's some folks who – who firmly believe it is like the energy salvation for humanity, uh, even without being able to sort of back it up with, with numbers. And then you have people on the other end that are just like against it no matter what, and they are not willing to look at any evidence or understand like, anything about the system. I think it's important for folks to, to find not just the middle ground, but to actually look at things critically, right? So like one of the things for solar power satellites uh, the challenge, of course, that people have often cited is for launch costs, right, as a sort of proxy for, for economics. Like, can solar power satellites get down to a reasonable cost per kilowatt hour to compete with either these off-grid sources that are pretty expensive or, in the longer term, with grid pricing? And it's not an easy thing to do, right? So, like, if you look at, like, the Department of Energy and the targets that they've set for terrestrial solar, like, the technology has consistently come in even lower than their aggressive targets, right? They had set the target of like six cents per kilowatt hour for utility PV by 2020. And that got achieved in like 2017. And by 2020, it was already at like 4.6 cents. So their target now for 2030 is like two cents a kilowatt hour for utility PV, which is quite low, right? So like, I don't think a person can realistically expect solar power satellites to compete at two cents a kilowatt hour within like the next five to 10 years. Uh, I mean, if you look at solar itself, right, it was around for decades before it could get even anywhere near the kind of price levels. So, so I think it's going to take a little while to mature the technology and to find the niche applications and just like satellites and remote facilities were good choices for solar as it was maturing, we've got to find those same niche applications and contexts and instances where power beaming makes sense and can stand on its own without having to first require some multi-billion dollar investment. But uh, by the way, Mac, I have, to, I have to give you credit. I think when I was first getting into this, one of the first meetings I went to was one that you hosted at uh, NASA Glenn in maybe 2008, where we did talk about different options for power beaming demos on the space station. That, that's something that stuck with me for a really long time. And I know a lot of the folks that were at that meeting I'm still in touch with today. And it's really exciting to see that we're making some good headway. So really appreciate your efforts for making that happen. Oh, thank you. Well, one of the, um, of course, one of the things, of course, I agree is uh, still in terms of making it portable uh, and uh, maturing the technology, uh, needs to happen, and it'll be several years, but we actually have to have positive things identified that mature the technology so that uh, it will happen in a reasonable time. So 
Are we having those things that uh, test and doing things that are mature in the technology, Paul? Yeah, critically important point, right? So, like, one thing, so if we somehow magically this afternoon had a solar power satellite that was in orbit, like, ready to turn on, we had direct antenna receiver, like, all set up on the ground somewhere, like, if we turn that thing on, we would probably make a ton of people unhappy if it was operating using uh, RF power beaming links because the spectrum is just not there, right? Like, the, uh, all the good parts of the spectrum, like, are already sort of spoken for and are being used. So there's a huge, component on the regulatory side that you just intimated for that really needs to be resolved for RF power beaming. Laser has kind of different problems, but spectrum allocation is not one of them. So I think it still deserves to be uh, considered at least to have other other problems with atmospheric transmission and clouds and stuff. Uh, but you're not going to be jamming people's Wi-Fi with a laser, depending on the wavelength or uh, frequency band you pick for RF power beaming that is certainly a, a real possibility. Uh, and that can take a lot of time to secure the spectrum, right? So uh, Naoki Shinohara in Japan from the uh, from Kyoto University has been looking at this for some years. And I know John has done work on this dating back, what, probably almost 20 years in engaging with the International Telecommunications Union and the regulatory agencies in the U.S. And it's not an easy thing. It takes time. It takes expertise and knowing the process and for the engineers developing the technology, it's not a great fit for them. So we've tried on a number of occasions to get people engaged with that, but it probably requires like a motivated stakeholder with resources to say, to really set out and say like, Hey, we need to, to solve this. We need to figure out what part of the spectrum can be used if we're going to use RF power beaming. So, so that's a, a major challenge. Uh, I do know uh, there's a company in New Zealand called MROD, which is looking at RF power beaming for extending the utility grid. Uh, Mac, like you mentioned, for maybe disaster response scenarios or, or similar. And this is something they're looking at and maybe a little easier for them since uh, they're, they're dealing just with, uh, with New Zealand, at least for the time being. But it is something that needs to be solved, and it's something that is, I don't think has, like, a obvious path to closure. Over. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. As a reminder, Space Q has two other podcasts in our network. Terranauts, hosted by industry veteran Ian Christie, which is now in season three, and the just launched Earth and Space podcast, focused on how we use space to benefit us in our everyday lives. Your feedback is very much appreciated. You can send us a comment, or a guest recommendation to podcast at spaceq.ca. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Economy Space, and you can also support the podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. Until next time.